The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Great to be here on a Sunday morning. I really have a sense of this being such a uh, thriving Dharma community. So always a pleasure to be here. I'd like to begin with a story. I've been telling this story a lot in the last six months, and it really feels like a a story for our time, even though it happened 2,300 years ago. (laughs) It's the story of King Ahsoka. Uh, Some of you may have heard it. King Ahsoka lived about 300 years after the time of the Buddha, so about 2,300 years ago. And he was known to be, this is in northern India, he was known to be a... um, Violent king, not kind to his own people, at war with the neighboring kingdoms. And it was said that 150,000 people died in battles while he was king. And 200,000 people were deported. Kind of, it's a shock to me. I had no idea deportations were going on in <laughs> such large number. But he had a, there was a particularly bloody battle, and he was on the battlefield afterwards, and he saw all the carnage on the battlefield. And he saw someone walking across the field, the battlefield. And as the person got closer, he saw it was a monk. And the monk was serene, was at peace, even, amid, even amidst all of this carnage. And the king stopped the monk and asked him why he was so serene. How could he be so serene in the midst of this? The monk could have responded with anger and said, how could you do this? Look what you've done. He could have turned away earlier and not not walked through the battlefield. He turned away from it. But he was unshaken in his level of peace unshaken in his clarity, recognized that even that king wanted safety, happiness, health, and ease in spite of all the suffering he was causing. So that monk who's nameless to this day shared the Buddha's precious teachings. And the king became a practitioner and became known as a very benevolent king, kind to his people, at peace with the neighboring kingdoms. And his son and daughter also became practitioners. And they carried this practice to Sri Lanka. And from Sri Lanka to practice was carried to Burma. That's now Myanmar. Of course, many of our teachers are in that lineage. So could directly say that we're connected to that nameless monk who shared the Buddha's precious teachings with King Asoka 2,300 years ago. So I'd like to speak today about wise speech, the third factor on the Eightfold Path. And uh, wise speech is supported most of all by sila or morality. I really prefer the description of sila as being living in harmony with our own hearts, living in harmony with the truth. And it's supported by the first two factors on the path, the factors of right view and right intention. And right intention, I'll particularly emphasize the importance of right intention in supporting right speech, wise speech. The intention for kindness, goodwill, 
goodwill for ourselves, for all beings. The intention of non-harming, not causing harm to ourselves or other beings. And the intention of letting go, letting go of needing, and of bringing a level of acceptance to every part of our lives and inviting patience. So the practice of wise speech is a, a deep, rich practice. It's a difficult practice, uh, but really provides an opportunity to support the purification of our own hearts, the deepening of our own practice, allowing a greater opening to happiness, joy, and ease, and a, the possibility of peace in any moment. So it's a tool for waking up, a tool for releasing our hearts. I'll speak about the four kinds of wise speech and also about the importance of listening, bringing silence in to listen closely to others. Maybe through the silence, listening closely to our own hearts, to our own deepest wishes. So I'd like to then begin in talking a little bit about sila, this wise, uh, wise speech being rooted in sila. Uh, the harmony, the three qualities of harmony that I see that are important. The harmony of our actions, which includes words. So words, actions, thoughts. That they're in harmony with our own hearts, with our own hearts' deepest wishes. To be in the world in a way that's non-harming, it's kind to ourselves and kind to others. And then living in harmony with other beings, promoting harmony with our family, friends, loved ones, colleagues, promoting that harmony in society as well. Really making this a rich, deepening practice to bring this power of right intention into all those relationships. And then living in harmony with the truth of the way things are, Perhaps the acknowledgement, understanding of impermanence, or identifying the emotions, the difficult emotions that may arise in our lives, seeing that they're not self, they're not who we are, they're just anger, fear, sadness, grief. We don't need to take root of identity around these. And then when we're in harmony with these qualities, it serves to release the heart from confusion. It kind of clears the fog away so that the heart-mind can see more clearly, can see things the way they really are, which of course then supports speech that's rooted in kindness and non-harming. From the Buddha and the Dhammapada, to abstain from all evil, to cultivate the good, and to purify one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. Interesting, he talks about abstaining from evil, cultivating the good, but then he puts that emphasis on purifying one's own mind. And very interesting that ultimately this eightfold path of practice, this practice of sila, is most of all, most of all for the purification of our own hearts and minds, even though sila promotes harmony with other beings. And this understanding of sila being living in harmony with the truth, with our own hearts, it's interesting too, and in that it's n unlike religions that so often have a set of edicts or, and rules around morality, this is very flexible in terms of different societies and cultures, emphasizing this harmonious quality. Something I really find appealing about this practice. 
Just checking it again on sound. I noticed this, the air was turned off. Was that in part because I wasn't speaking loudly enough? <laughs> okay. Okay. And if it gets too warm, turn it on and just raise your hand to tell me I need to speak more loudly. That's wise speech too. <laughs> speech doesn't seem to be what we're saying. Speech, this wise speech includes, of course, text, text messaging, emails, uh, lots of different forms of communication. So just uh, kind of a little example. Um, I'm just going to use an example of my partner. Usually he gets up in the morning first. This morning he slept in late. He's still asleep when I left. But usually he has his breakfast first. He has his breakfast, leaves his dirty dishes in the sink for a little while, and comes back later. So in that situation, I could kind of get angry and express words of anger. Then I wouldn't be in harmony with my own heart. And there'd be a sense of rattledness, maybe dis-ease from that. Maybe my partner would snap back at me and get angry too, or give me the silent treatment. Right? We, all, we all know these things. So out of harmony with people in my family, when, when I act and when I speak in a way that's uh, words spoken with harshness. And it would have also affected the meditation right here for me because I would have been reflecting back on the harsh words that I've spoken, maybe a sense of regret. So the more we can purify our intentions, then we purify our speech and we purify the heart-mind for the deeper release of the heart, for the deeper understandings from this practice. So... A little bit about just a little bit about right speech and a little more about right intention. Uh, right, I'm sorry. A little bit more about right view, first path factor, and right intention. So these really are the foundation for right speech, for right action. So right view, the basic understanding is actions have consequences. Just like if I yelled at my partner, there would have been a consequence. Every action, including every word that we speak, ultimately has some consequence. We may not know what it is, but this is the law of karma. Actions have consequences. So that's the first path factor. And the second path factor that I'm emphasizing so much today is right intention. So the intention of not making a big deal about the the small stuff, kind of letting go around things needing to be a particular way, kind of not being in contention with the present moment, beginning to accept the present moment as it is, a real benefit that we all realize from practice. It's most often referred to as renunciation, letting go, letting go of needing, letting go of making our, letting go of making our happiness dependent on things being a particular way. If I made my happiness dependent on my partner doing his dishes right after breakfast every day, I wouldn't be very happy. <laughs> so I can really let loose around the, the uh, smaller stuff with practice. And then the deepening of uh, the intention of kindness and goodwill. I just led a 10-day metta retreat at Spirit Rock. It's a great opportunity to practice metta for a full 10 days. And, Hundred people just repeating phrases of loving kindness silently for ten days, and every single person, without exception, benefited from the practice. Can really see their hearts open up. 
So the kindness and goodwill recognizes that every being wants the same safety, happiness, health, and ease that we want. No one's different. We all want this. People who are good, people who are bad, animals, creatures, all want safety, happiness, health, and ease. And the more deeply we can open to this, the more fully present we can be in the world, the more we can be connected to our own hearts. So it's, it's really such an important part of my practice to just check this again and again. And maybe I, maybe I get it one out of 50 times before I speak to check in. But if I, if I keep doing it, I'm beginning to create grooves in the heart-mind so that more naturally the words that are spoken come from a place of loving-kindness. And the third element of right intention is non-harming. A real commitment to not causing harm to other beings and also not causing harm to ourselves. And it supports um, the arising of compassion. The compassion that is a quivering of the heart that is a natural response to seeing suffering and the wish for the suffering to end. So it might even be that if we've spoken harsh words towards someone to feel compassion for ourselves and feel our suffering, not to add another layer of harshness by judging our harsh, ourselves harshly for having spoken harsh words. So it's so important that we bring these factors of loving kindness, non-harming to ourselves. That's what the Buddha said, to begin with ourselves with loving kindness and expand the field outwards ultimately to all beings. I think it was about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, I spoke here on just on the topic of right intention and how I brought it into my work life specifically and how my practice really took off when I decided that these qualities of right intention have to be in every part of my life. And that I'd been hearing the instructions for 10 years before that from the teachers, but I hadn't gotten it until that point 10 years ago when I came back from a six-week retreat wanting to quit my job so I could just do dedicated practice realizing I couldn't, and then finally, <laughs> finally deciding, aha, I'll just have to practice the Eightfold Path in my life, including in the workplace. Really open things up to be bringing this intention of kindness, goodwill, caring to the workplace, practice right speech to the workplace, understanding that every action I took, even at work, had a consequence. It's a great thing to be able to begin to talk even at work about being kind to one another, being kind to employees, being kind to the customers. For me, working at the airport, the passengers we serve, uh, being compassionate. First, a lot of people were, what are you talking about? This is work. (laughs) But the more we talked about it, the more people liked it. People felt like they were being recognized for who they are and they could bring themselves more fully more authentically, more safely into the workplace. So the four kinds of uh, right speech. Uh, The first one is truthfulness, refraining from saying words that are untrue and then speaking words that are uh, truthful and beneficial. So we can catch ourselves sometimes just small stories. I just caught myself last week telling a story and kind of giving myself a little more prominent role in the story. And I actually didn't catch it until about two or three minutes afterwards. Like, what did I do? 
maybe like almost we begin to change the memory of the stories in our minds so we can kind of pump up our role <laughs> a little bit. Or we exaggerate facts just to strengthen our points. So we can catch this. And it's not, you know, we don't need to ever judge ourselves harsh, harshly we can, when we see it. We can laugh at it, see it, recognize, oh, this wasn't quite truthful. Kind of reset our intention to be more careful in the future. You can see what a big role <coughs> truthfulness is having in our country today. Just every time you open up the media, the reporters are reporting on what politicians' comments were truthful and which weren't. Just a constant fact-checking that's going on. And as the Buddha said, and the, the, one of the forces that really undermines the cohesiveness of a society is a, a lack of truthfulness. So it feels so important in my own practice to keep finding the courage to stand up and speak the truth and to see that anyone who's being oppressed, being diminished, that I should have the courage to speak up, speak up and tell the truth. And it's just not for, like, for me, for people who are, who are gay or lesbian. It's really going outwards to all beings. And... Um, Recently, my partner and I had a chance to, and I view it as like an opportunity to help an undocumented immigrant couple or law-abiding people. Um, and it isn't much we're doing. We're just supporting them in being invisible. Kind of heartbreaking to have to support people in being invisible. And think of what, what the burden that must be for children to have to carry the need to be invisible to protect their own family from potentially being deported. I read uh, last weekend, I read an op-ed piece in the New York Times from a former Major League Baseball player who wrote about, he's a sports commentator, Doug Glanville. He wrote about Jessica Mendoza, the first woman baseball analyst at a national level. And she's getting a lot of criticism from people writing in saying she doesn't know enough about baseball. Kind of a lot of biases around gender. And she's a gold medalist in softball, so she really knows the game. And uh, the fact that Doug Glanville would write an op-ed piece to defend her and call upon people to act at a higher level, he didn't need to do that. He didn't need to do that for his own benefit or for his own family. He was just speaking up for the truth. So writing about Jessica Mendoza, he said, instead of using Mendoza as an example, of someone being out of her lane, I would rather tell my children this is what you can aspire to be. You can break barriers, expose people to another perspective on the game, challenge conventional thought, and show strength in the face of people who gripe against you simply because of your identity. Pioneers never fit in. One of the areas I really want to be vocal on is um, around transgender rights uh, and people who are gender non-conforming, that they too be treated with respect, even at this time, especially, I think, because there are words that are hateful, uh, being spoken against them, being where there are being targets. And I reflect that there's, uh, each year there's consistently over 25 murders in the U.S., of people who are transgender, just because they're transgender. So even though 
people who are transgender or gender non-conforming may be a very small part of the population. I feel it's very important for me, at least, to be an ally. And for me as a teacher, you'll hopefully hear me say this when uh, I ask for questions and people ask a question, I will say, they said, rather than he or she said. Because I have the intention of not making an assumption around gender. And for someone who's gender non-conforming to constantly hear someone making an assumption about them that's untrue is very painful. So I want to be an ally there. I connect too with my, um, kind of a long time ago, a great, great, great grandfather. His daughter wrote a, bi- a biography of him, a Unitarian minister in the uh, 1850s, 1870s in St. Louis. And in the biography, he, uh, it was written that he had the courage to stand up against slavery. And Missouri was a border state. He lost half of his congregation, but he had the courage to speak the truth. And interestingly, he, uh, I learned 10 years later, he spoke for the women's right to vote. I didn't even know in the 1870s that was being discussed. So it inspires me to want to be strong enough to speak to tell the truth, even in the face of hatred. And just yesterday, as I was reflecting on that story of my great-great-grandfather, I could also see, ah, there's some conceit that I have here because I was having this feeling, I want my great-great-great-grandchildren to look back and say, oh, this guy, John Martin, he was with it. So, (laughs) a little conceit and pride going on. (laughs) So I love, too, the words I keep reflecting on from the Buddha, that hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred is healed by love alone. It really acknowledges that hatred is a disease and that it, the healing takes place by the force of love, by this right intention of loving kindness. So when I speak uh, about the second uh, aspect of why speech, which is to speak to unite, to promote concord, the word bhikkhu bodhi uses concord among people. So it's to refrain from slander and gossip, which tends to cause disharmony in cultures and societies. And slander, it said, the Buddha said slander has a especially bad karmic consequence when we speak kind of directly with language to, to cause harm found a quote that I like from uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, the greatest harm is done when we let the forces of envy and hatred enter into our nature. So really bringing mindfulness into the practice before speaking. Sometimes we can catch this. Um, about a week ago, I found myself right on the edge of this gossip. Someone had, I had heard secondhand, someone had criticized me in a way that seemed unfair, not based on facts. And I felt the impulse to tell one other person about that story and how it happened and kind of to say how wrong it was and in fact kind of making fun of the other person for having said that. I could feel that impulse to say that and then pause, check the body. I had the advantage of knowing I was gonna be giving this talk. (laughs) A little more incentive to do well. Feel the body, pause. What's the intention? This is something we can keep bringing in 
time and time and again in our lives, especially when a anger or strong aversion, kind of jealousy, rage, some stronger emotions coming up. Let that be kind of an alarm bell to check into the body. I was engaged in a conversation, so I couldn't really explore it much, but I could kept feeling the impulse two or three times, not acting on it. I felt a real sense of peace and ease afterwards and not having followed through on that. Then when I had more time, I went back and tried to investigate what had happened. So this is something we can bring to our practice around wise speech too. So there was a thought, the memory of what was said about me, and it was unpleasant, the Vedna, the feeling tone, the kind of a clinging to wanting it to be different, wanting myself not to be seen in a negative way, and then the impulse, the impulse to speak, almost as if to get rid of this unpleasant feeling. So we can actually see what's going on. Sometimes we can go back and investigate what is causing that impulse to say words that are unkind or hateful. So again, too, I, have, I felt you know, the, the harsh judgment around myself. So this is a little bit of harsh judgment, just even, even having that thought. So again, offering kindness to ourselves, even when we, feel may, we may feel as harsh judgments. I really felt, too, the benefit of bringing more harmony into my workplace. When I decided to more fully bring right intention into all of my life, especially as, as being a boss, bring people together, I could really begin to see that people were sharing more directly, working more directly to help one another. An an example of this is we changed the way we did construction projects. We did about a billion dollars a year of construction at the airport. Usually lawsuits and claims always with construction. So we had this model of getting people together, contractors, engineers, architects, airline officials, and everybody would share their own goals, their own concerns, and come together around a common vision and agree on how they were going to identify problems, how they were going to solve problems. So having a a model of understanding and a model for right speech. And it really promoted the sense of unity so that people loved being on the job. So people said this was the best construction project Terminal 2 is an example uh, that they ever worked on. And uh, this great satisfaction that can come when we promote this sense of harmony and unification among groups of people. So the third aspect of right speech is speaking words that are gentle and kind, abstaining from harsh speech. The Buddha said they avoid harsh language and abstain from it. They speak such words as are gentle, soothing to the ear, loving. Such words as go to the heart and are courteous, friendly, and agreeable. Oh, that description, beautiful description. Maybe you caught, maybe someone caught this. The Buddha usually, the quotes from the Pali texts are, he avoids harsh language, he abstains from it. Sometimes teachers say, she avoids harsh language, changing the pronoun. Uh, consistent with my wish to be more mindful of gender identity, today I use they. They avoid harsh language. They avoid harsh speech. 
So something you might want to play with yourself to try using this language from time to time, particularly if you don't know someone's uh, gender identity. It really does promote that sense of softness and caring that the Buddha was talking about. Sometimes, most of all, what I find is this, this sense of kind, gentle speech can come from awareness itself. When I'm, when I'm fully present, the heart is fully open, and the, kind of the words and the actions can come directly from the heart. It's almost not a thinking process. And I found this so clearly in my volunteer work in hospice care is not the mind doesn't go much of anywhere else when one's with someone who's dying. And um, if I'm fully present, the heart is open. Sometimes words just come out on appreciating someone's beautiful heart or reaching out and touching their hand. And it's just happening. And I can see, too, at the, in those moments, the, the beautiful qualities of the heart that are really innate kind of already here, these beautiful qualities of loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity, they're already here. We just need to open our hearts, use this tool of mindfulness to allow these qualities of the heart to naturally merge, these divine abodes of the heart. Kind of a beautiful example of seeing the way these qualities can arise, not from a thinking process, was with one resident I was with, um, ML, and I had sat with ML for about six weeks. And they never said a word. The nurses said that uh, ML had a stroke, probably had no cognitive ability whatsoever. But I'd sit with ML, and we'd hold hands, and uh, always sense some beautiful heart presence, uh, just being together. But on this day, we heard a glass break in another room and a person shout out for help, another resident. And they immediately raised their hand and waved for me to go help the other person. So where did that come from? Mysterious and beautiful purity of the heart. So I too had a bad experience with harsh speech last week. Uh, It happens. I uh, got upset with someone, and I didn't speak harshly to them. I spoke harshly about them to someone else. And I could really feel the shake and rattle afterwards. And I couldn't, actually couldn't sleep that night. Um, you can feel the, the residual impact when we give in to harsh speech. So our practice is not to ignore if anger is present or aversion is present, Practice is to feel into it, to acknowledge the anger that's there. Okay, I missed that step in this case. To acknowledge, feel into, feel into the direct body experience. Um, and then pause. And if words are to be spoken, then try to connect with the intention of kindness and non-harming. So it really motivated that incident, motivated my practice to be more careful in the future, to deepen my commitment to this. And I investigated this too. I could see there was, uh, had a sense of anger about not being fully kept in form. And then underneath that was a fear. And underneath the fear was a sense of 
pride of looking bad, of not looking good enough because I didn't know what was going on. If I could go back and trace back all of the elements, if I had done that in that incident, instance, probably wouldn't have spoken with uh, words of anger. And uh, you can see the two in that going back and checking what happened so all of those qualities, the, the anger, the fear, the pride, are not personal. They're just, they're just emotions. So I always suggest recommending the tool when these strong emotions are present, just to, to note to oneself, this is what fear feels like. This is what anger feels like. This, the word this is takes it a little bit away from I am fearful or I am angry. It allows some spaciousness, some balancing out so it doesn't seem to be all-consuming. So it's the importance of listening. That, you know, I really bring that listening to the uh, hospice work, that close listening. The Buddha said, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. When we have that abundant quality of the heart, we can just sit and be present for whatever is there, sometimes finding a much greater courage of our hearts that we might have thought possible to be in the presence of suffering, our own suffering or the suffering of others. And I've really found, too, the deepest listening is so supported by loving kindness, beginning with oneself, beginning with myself. When I volunteer at hospice care, I always start going in with a meditation, saying words of loving kindness for myself. So if, if, there's an, if there's a contraction around oneself, if there's a sense of harshness around oneself, it's pretty hard to open to the suffering of others. It's like a, a fog that's in front of the heart. So, and the deep listening really supports breaking through the sense of separateness, to really open to seeing that all beings want the same basic peace and happiness that we want in life. We can open to a sense, a great sense that this happiness and peace is not, can't be separated one from another. It's really, uh, can be transformative to open to that understanding. So I'm beginning to tell, I worked at the airport, and I'm just beginning to tell a story after four years of bringing it into some talks. This is uh, four years ago. I was actually director of the airport, some of you may may know. And uh, four years ago, I was uh, there for the Asiana crash. And uh, it was certainly the most difficult time in my time as director. And uh, I was at home weeding the front yard and got the call and it felt, uh, immediately felt, felt a sense of peace kind of right in the midst of the trauma. Some of you may have felt that sometimes around your own sickness or death of a loved one, kind of suddenly, kind of like the, the shakiness, something big happening, maybe opening to a, a spaciousness and balance. And uh, interesting, I didn't need to be on the car phone driving down to work. I could sit and kind of recognize people at work doing what they needed to do. I didn't need to be intervening 
or taking charge. And I could stay connected to the heart in that, in that listening, in the presence, seeing the, seeing the ambulances go by, up to going to San Francisco General and um, you know, really wishing that people would be well, that uh, there wouldn't be deaths, there wouldn't be much suffering. Could be present for a fear, knowing that there was fear being felt, but in a sense of spaciousness. It was really uh, amazing to walk into the emergency operations center and see 60, 70 people all doing everything they could, doing the very best they could to save lives. People from probably 30 different organizations, police, fire, FBI, TSA, all my own staff people, immigrations, customs, and everybody just working to save lives. And clearly in that there's a sense of stillness and even silence, even with all that activity and, and the voices. And the sense of clarity that can arise in the opening to the stillness, even, even when there's noise. And it became clear that I really didn't need to be involved in that part of the work of saving lives, getting people to safety. Uh, it became clear my job was to get people organized to get the airport reopened because 200 planes were in the air planning to land at SFO and there were no runways open. So I took charge there, getting that together, getting people together, creating kind of a supporting, creating unity with some group of people to work on that. I'm feeling such a sense of stillness in reflecting on this. can feel those, the presence of the peace of equanimity in reflecting on this. I still had to step out to the uh, press conference. There were 60 cameras and uh, 120 reporters. And at first, walking into the room, pausing, I could, I could feel some nervousness <laughs> about speaking because there was a lot more I didn't know than what I did know. And that I knew I would have to say that. And... Um, then I looked in those cameras and saw that behind those cameras were probably 30, 40 million people who would be watching TV around the world and seeing that everyone's natural response to the heart was to wish people well. Probably with, almost without exception in the whole world, everyone wishing that there would be minimum loss of lives, that people would be well. And connecting with that power of that strength the basic innate quality of the heart. I felt such a sense of peace stepping out to the microphones and being able to acknowledge what was not known and being able to have some sense of speaking from the heart. Hopefully speaking words that were kind and beneficial. So the fourth category uh, to talk about, just a couple minutes left, is uh, avoiding useless and frivolous talk. And um, an easy one to catch ourselves slipping into, just kind of the the wish to fill up space. Maybe we can do this around uh, uh, texting or Facebook too. We can just fill up space in our lives with uh, needless frivolous talk. So to bring attention to this, and the Buddha Buddha didn't say not to, engage in affectionate chatter. He didn't, for those in, uh, who are not renunciates, this is still important to have in building relationships. 
So finally, just in, in closing, this wise speech is supported by sila, this quality of harmonious living with our own hearts, harmonious living with other beings, living in harmony with the truth, supported by the intention of kindness and non-harming and letting go, Some, a tool we can bring into our practice again and again to, to check these intentions, to take that pause and see what's going on and not identify with the emotions that might be arising. So this really supports the purification of our own hearts and uh, ultimately the release of our hearts from confusion and an opening to a peace that can be unshakable and the opening to the possibility of peace in any moment. Any moment peace is possible. Great benefit and promise of our practice. I thank you for your presence and uh, listening to the talk. And we have just a couple minutes for any any questions or comments. Yes, Barry. John, you talked about. Oh, yes, sir. Hi, John. Uh, you talked about an instance of maybe not so right speech and saying something critical about another person. Is there a part of that? where you correct that, the harm that you've done. There may well be cases where it should be done, and uh, I expect I'll be doing some of that on Tuesday. (laughs) 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 And uh, sometimes not. Sometimes part of the purification process, uh, many of you who've been on retreats may have experienced this, saw a lot of it on the Metta retreat. A memory, someone who's 60 years old remembers something they did when they were eight years old that caused harm to another child. Can't go tracing that person down and apologize. But thank you for that point, Barry. Yeah, thank you. Time for probably just one more question. Anybody or comment? Yeah, Dal? Thank you. I'd like to uh, piggyback onto that question. Um, Somewhere I've developed this. One of the ways that I can make amends for those things is make a commitment not to do it again, Mm -hmm. to be differently. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that, that ability, Mm -hmm. because it it becomes much bigger, Mm -hmm. as I see. Mm -hmm. If I can change in the way I am with people, it's a much bigger thing than that one little incident. Beautiful. Beautiful. Both, yeah, it's a beautiful reflection. And uh, also the, the apology, the ask for forgiveness. And to also, this is a point, one point I missed is to power of stating the intention. Uh, to, to state maybe with the other person, I intend to be cl- more clear with the feelings I have, I intend to treat, uh, to engage in more direct conversation and not cause harm through speech. There's something about saying words out loud that reinforces that commitment um, to avoiding harsh speech in the future. So So I thank you all for your practice and attention and just to offer the merit of our practice for just a minute, uh, offer the merit of our practice to be for the benefit of all beings. 
May our presence in the world be for the benefit of all beings. May our time together here be for the benefit of all beings, for all beings to be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May it be so.